the possibility of life on another planet is something that I think everyone has asked themselves at some point in their lives. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is Dr. Kaylee Byers, who as we heard from last episode, seven years for her postdoc, also seven years of Buffy, which has got me really confused because I just finished season two, Buffy's just killed Angel, and she's talking off on a bus, so the show should be over, right? You know what? It can all be very confusing, especially because apparently I just went from seven years in a PhD to seven years in a postdoc, but yeah, uh, Buffy's going to take you on some ups and downs. I don't want to I don't want to give too many things away, but at least you know you're in it for the long haul now. Okay, in the long haul, like the hell mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are talking about holes on Earth, but of course, they can also exist in space. And today, we're going to be talking about space. Today, we're joined by newly doctored Michelle Kunamoto, who is an exoplanetologist and recent PhD graduate at the University of British Columbia and is just sitting around waiting for a postdoc at MIT, where she'll be working for NASA's test mission to discover and characterize new planets outside of the solar system. Hello, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This episode is just like Michael's absolute dream. I'm I'm more of a space newbie. But for us people who tend to study the things here on planet Earth, maybe can you tell us what is an exoplanet? Sure. So an exoplanet is a planet that's outside of the solar system. Um, exo means outer. So, you know, if you've ever watched science fiction and they're on another planet, it's probably going to be an exoplanet. So it's outside of the solar system. And so I would imagine those are pretty hard to find, considering we're, you know, in this one. So how do you find yourself in a place where you can actually say that you've discovered 21 of them? Yeah, you're totally right. It's it's pretty hard to find them. Um, all the planets in our own solar system are so close relative to everything else in space that you can use a backyard telescope to, to see a lot of them with your own eyes. But exoplanets are so far away that you need to have more special techniques. And sometimes telescopes are are needing to be on the cutting edge of technology to even be able to see the signal from an exoplanet. So Michelle, how exactly, so you've discovered some of these exoplanets and you say that you can't just use backyard telescopes. So how do you find them? T typically you're going to need a really high precision telescope, like one that's either in a big observatory on the ground or the one that I used, which was data from NASA's Kepler mission. So Kepler was the first telescope that was actually able to find small Earth-sized planets orbiting around sun-like stars. And all of their data is actually available for free on the internet. You, anyone with an internet connection and a computer can just go on there and see all the data that was taken by Kepler. So for my undergraduate degree and then my PhD, I downloaded all this data and searched through it to find new exoplanets. Now, is that a normal thing? Or are there other grad students doing this? Or is this something that you kind of like took on and was like, I'm really excited about finding alien worlds. I'm going to take this on and, and try to see if I can find some. There have actually been high school students that have done something similar to what I did. It's it's oh, wow. actually really accessible. And there's a lot of online resources for people to get started with planet hunting. So yeah, high school students, undergrads, uh, graduate students, or anyone really, you don't need a PhD to be able to join the hunt for exoplanets. I mean, I have a PHD in rats, but that did get me very excited <laughs> that maybe I could find one too. So what are the characteristics? I go and I download the data. What am I looking for? 
the basic idea behind finding planets with Kepler uh, is using what's known as the transit method. So anytime an object passes in front of a light source, like a star, it'll block some of that star's light. So the idea behind this is you're observing the star and you're measuring the brightness of the star over time. And anytime the star's brightness dips, it's probably a planet that's passing in front of it and blocking its star, the light from that star. So if that happens periodically, it's a really good indication it's a planet that's in orbit around that star. So you talked about the Kepler mission, and you're also going to be working on the TESS mission. Could you maybe talk about those two telescopes, and are they the same, and what's different uh, about them? So Kepler, as I mentioned, it was the first really high-precision telescope that could find Earth-sized planets, and it looked at a single section of the sky in the Cygnus Lyrae constellation. So if you were to hold your hand out at arm's length, the amount of space that that covers is actually about the size of the sky that, that Kepler was able to observe. But TESS is very different in that it's actually going to be looking at the entire sky. Oh, wow. Um, rather than a single section, it'll be looking at all the nearest and brightest stars for exoplanets. So that seems to me, I mean, once again, rat scientist, but that seems to me to be a big glow up <laughs> to go from one section of the sky to the whole sky. How do you do that? What's so different that allows TESS to be able to look at such a, a greater area? Well, there's advantages and disadvantages of both uh, procedures. So with Kepler, they wanted to have a lot of stars that had very little background that's getting in the way that could contaminate your your measurements. So the section of the sky they chose was specifically a section that had very few background stars that could do any kind of contamination. Whereas TESS um, is going to be looking at really bright stars, which are easier to observe. But the downside of that is that there's going to be more contamination due to other sources that are in, in the same pixels. And what, what other things would contaminate? Mainly stars. Basically, uh, it's the stars. But the really important thing about TESS, too, is that because it's observing these really near and bright stars, um, it's going to be more conducive to follow-up measurements from other kinds of telescopes, like those on Earth, that don't have the precision to be able to follow up on on planets found by Kepler, but would with TESS. So let's take us back here, Michelle. So you were an undergrad at UBC, and... You're, you're studying about space. And how is it that you that you yourself found yourself in a place where all of a sudden you're discovering exoplanets? It just seems like a big jump. You're in school, you're studying, and then all of a sudden you're making these like huge discoveries that, you know, when I was going to school, there was zero exoplanets <laughs> discovered. Like that seems like, were you just in the right place at the right time? And it was just something that you uh, jumped onto? Yeah, I, I think that's it. I, I, I do feel really genuinely lucky about where I am. So as an undergrad, I actually didn't have any research experience until the last year of my undergrad. And there's a program at UBC called Co-op where students can apply for jobs in the field that they're interested in and try to get research experience. And I was actually not successful at getting any jobs. But I took a course in my third year called Exoplanets and Astrobiology. And that was actually the first time I'd ever learned about exoplanets and how to find them and and the potential for life on other planets outside of the realms of science fiction. And after that course was finished, I basically went and talked to the prof and said, you know, I'm looking for any research experience that you can you can provide. If it's possible that you'd be able to provide like an internship over the summertime, I'm really interested. Please let me know. And there was a research award that was given out to undergrads, um, specifically undergrads that are looking for their first research experience. So I applied for that and he became the supervisor for that. And what excites you about doing this work? Why did 
that learning about exoplanets make you decide that that's the sort of research that you wanted to be doing? What is it about this field that gets you excited? Well, I'm a huge Trekkie. Um, <laughs> the original series is what inspired me to go into astronomy in the first place, instead of going into something else. And specifically, I think in the original series, you know, they're, it's a very cerebral show. Like it's not all action and good versus evil. There's a lot of philosophy and they they also seek out new worlds, you know, civilizations. And I think that really instilled a sense of curiosity in me. And at the same time, the possibility of life on another planet is something that I think everyone has asked themselves at some point in their lives. You know, are we alone? That's such a fundamental scientific and philosophical question. And by looking for exoplanets, I feel like I'm starting to be able to answer that question, especially looking for potentially habitable planets that could look just like our own Earth. And and have you found any that sort of fit those characteristics? So I did I did find one that <gasps> fits those characteristics uh, through the dissertation. So my PhD basically took the search that I did as an undergrad, which was on around 400 stars, and expanded it to the entire Kepler data set of 200,000. I basically did just what Kepler did, where they searched those 200,000 stars, but tried to find anything they'd miss. And out of that came 17 new planet candidates, one of which is what I would consider a rocky planet. So that's going to be smaller than about 1.5 times the size of the Earth, and also in the star's habitable zone which is a range of distances from a star where it could have liquid water on its surface. So even though we don't know a lot about the characteristics of this planet specifically, other than how big its orbit is and its size, um, we can start to estimate you know, how hot that planet might be depending on different assumptions. So is that really, so we talk about the habitable zone, maybe expand on that. So are you really looking for Earth 2.0? Is there, are you looking for all of the same characteristics that well, if life arose here on this planet, we have to find another planet like ours in order to find life. Yeah. So this is one of the fundamental questions that astronomy is trying to answer is just how common other planets like our own Earth are. And what exactly it means to be like our own Earth is a pretty controversial question. <laughs> you know, does it have to be around a star just like our sun? Or can it be around a star that's hotter than our sun or cooler? Does it have to be a planet that's exactly Earth size, or can it be a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller? How does that change the prospects for habitability on that planet? And we also have to make a lot of assumptions because we're very Earth-centric in our, in our estimates. You know, we assume that life's going to need water. We assume that life is going to need a rocky planet to, to, to live on. But the more and more we discover, I think the more we can actually start to challenge those assumptions. It must be very hard to even try to think about what something like a Earth would look like if it didn't look like Earth. Exactly. There's a really big push right now in in the field to start to look more at M-dwarfs, which are um, stars that are cooler and smaller than our own sun. And the reason for this is because they're, they constitute about 70% of all the stars in our galaxy. So any planets around them are going to be really common. And the planets that are in the habitable zones of these stars orbit a lot closer to the stars because they're so much cooler than our sun, which makes them easier to find. So these are really good things to think about when looking for these kinds of planets. But the downside is if they're so much closer, they're going to be bombarded by so much more radiation than we are on our own Earth and other other effects like that. And we really don't know what that means for habitability because we're the one data point of a planet that, that is able to support life and you know, there's so much more that could be possible. So what do you think that one data point is going to be? Because quite often I see 
articles that come out and it's astronomers who find the next Earth-like planet and everyone gets excited, but it's not really what they're looking for because we're talking about aliens, we're talking about life and we have all these ideas because as you said, you're a Trekkie, we kind of have these visions in our head of what that looks like. So what is that data point that you're ultimately hoping to find that's going to be able to say, okay, yes, we have found this planet that has a really good chance of sustaining life? I don't think we're there yet, um, technologically speaking. I think there is actually going to be in the next decade or so really big advancements in finding atmospheres around other planets. So at the moment, we can characterize the atmospheres of really giant planets like Jupiter-sized planets, but we haven't been able to do that for Earth-sized planets. So if we can find water in an Earth-sized planet's atmosphere, that would be a really good sign for habitability. And there's also the field of astrobiology, which is trying to figure out, you know, are there particular bioindicators that if these molecules exist in a planet's atmosphere, only a biotic process could have caused those. For instance, methane, carbon dioxide, oxygen, you know, is there a certain combination of those that could actually indicate you have life on this planet's surface? So again, we're not quite there yet to be able to detect those molecules in such a small planet's atmosphere, but we are going to be there, I think, in the next 10 years or so. But even if we discover, say, Earth-like planets, should we all be packing our bags and getting ready to go on a vacation? Like, how long would it take to get there? I, I, yeah, it's. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the planets founded by Kepler are thousands of light years away. So even if we were traveling at the speed of light, you know, it would take thousands of years. But that being said, I think if I had a favorite planet, it would be the one that is around Proxima Centauri, which is the closest star to our sun. Only 4.2 light years away, so relatively close, um, and is actually in the habitable zone of that star. So just the fact that the closest star to our sun has a planet in the habitable zone, that kind of shocks you into thinking, well, geez, how common are potentially habitable planets in, in the galaxy? Yeah. And how many organisms, life forms are looking at themselves and also thinking they're just one data point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, this really actually just got me thinking, you know, because Kaylee, you know, you study rats and you're able to like to burrow in there and actually like touch them and like interact with them. Oh, too many of them. Yeah. <laughs> But Michelle, you know, I can, you can imagine like, uh, and I'm sure you're going to have a long career. I mean, you've already uh, well on your way, but you could reach the end of your life and you will have not have answered some of those big questions or even be able to like come close to some of those big questions. How does that, like, where does that leave you as, as a scientist in like that, that drive and that quest to, to trying to answer those, those questions? Well, I think that there's a quote, we stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, that, the big advancements of the future are possible because of what people are doing right now. So that's developing new techniques to find exoplanets, developing the technology to find them. So even though we probably won't be able to say if any of the planets discovered in my lifetime are actually habitable, just being able to find so many planets now and start to understand how common they are really helps the future plan new missions and design new missions, things like that. And then they'll be able to say that uh, the Kunimoto planet, you had discovered it, uh, didn't know that it had life, but like in like <laughs> in like 500 years, they're going to be like, oh yeah, it has life. Speaking of sort of standing on giants and, and into the future, and also thinking of Star Trek, <laughs> is there a planet from Star Trek that you would love to find that actually existed? Well, it's funny you say that because a lot of people like to ask me what I would name the planets that I found. And they're given very technical names, just based off the star. It's all this 
very technical classification, but privately I can name planets. <laughs> so what I've done in the past is look at planets from science fiction and if there's any estimates of like what the star that they orbit around, like Vulcan, for instance, I think the Star Trek wiki has has estimates of what kind of planet Vulcan would be, like what star it orbits around. So if I ever find a match to Vulcan, I'd love to be able to, to privately name that Vulcan or just I think there's there's another planet that in the media is often referred to as Hoth because it's an ice planet, things like that. That I really like that. <laughs> And speaking of your life as a scientist, Michelle, you uh, are leaving UBC. You're going to be starting work at MIT. And as you said, you're going to be switching from working off of Kepler data to now test data. So how does how does your work change? Or if it is it going to change at all? Or is it just sort of a continuation of what you did as an undergrad? It will be a bit of both. Obviously, I'll be able to draw on a lot of my experiences using Kepler data, designing my own pipeline to be searching for, through that data and assessing the candidacy of new planets. Uh, but TESS is going to be a little bit different. There's There'll be different systematics in the data, different things I'll have to be careful of. And one thing I'm actually really excited about is um, as an undergrad and PhD student, I've been working pretty much all by myself with my supervisor. You know, no no team of scientists, no group. It's just been me and my computer. Whereas with TESS, I'll be working with a whole team of programmers and astronomers and, and scientists. I'm, I've, I'm actually the only, I was the only grad student who was working on exoplanets at UBC. So to be able to actually have people across the hall, I can just gush about exoplanets with, I think will be really nice. It's like, kind of like when I was, you know, in my parents' basement and I uh, had my Star Trek uh, uniform on and I was like, nobody to talk to. And all of a sudden I moved to the city and there was like, oh, wait, there's other people that like Star Trek too? Like, awesome. <laughs> what you needed is a, a virtual hall you needed the internet a long time ago to be able to meet those people that's right and as we've talked before i did not have the internet when i was living in the <laughs> suburbs should we get to uh some nerd herd questions oh yeah let's get to some nerd herd questions why is the sky what's at the center of a black hole does anyone have free will what is like carbon why do we keep pets it's time for listener questions all right. So if you're interested in asking a nerd herd question, uh, Kaylee and I, as we get our stuff together, we'll post things on our social media at NerdNightYVR on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So just like uh, we're interviewing Michelle, uh, we'll post. So if you ever want to ask a question, make sure to look out on those social media. But uh, previous guest Promote gets in with the first question, who asks, which exoplanet is most likely to be a tourist destination for future human beings? Definitely one that's close. <laughs> I mean, the, the scale of the galaxy is just so enormous that the vast majority of exoplanets that exist in this galaxy, I think, are, are too far, at least for the next hundreds, maybe thousands of years. But going back to the planet that I mentioned before, the one around Pro Proxima Centauri, that one is only 4.2 light years away. And that's the closest possible that you can get than, from any exoplanet. So of course, we won't know what the surface of that planet will be like. You know, will it be really dangerous for humans or what kind of precautions will we make? But I'm sure they'll, you know, put those precautions together before we think of any manned mission. Or it'll be like adventure tourism. Yeah, well, Kepler, the Kepler team and NASA have actually put together exoplanet tourist posters. Like, uh, I actually have them on the wall. Like Kepler 186F, where the grass is always redder on the other side because... <laughs> 
It, it has so many different characteristics or where your shadow always has company because there's multiple suns on on this planet. It's it's a really nice idea. I mean, that would really be the ultimate to have that Luke Skywalker experience to watch a double sunset. I mean, uh, I would pay uh, as much money as I have to have that experience. <laughs> Okay, and we have one other question from Adam who would like to know what forces influence the course of rogue planets? So maybe first, what's a rogue planet? And then what are the forces that influence rogue planets? Sure, so a rogue planet is a planetary mass object. Different people debate whether it's actually a planet or not. But so it's a planetary mass object that doesn't orbit any star. So it, it might be free-floating in, in the galaxy, not gravitationally bound to any star like the planets are to our own sun. So how it would have come to be that way, there's a lot of different ideas. For instance, it, there could have been a really close encounter with another star that stripped that planet from its own system um, and just sent it totally tumbling through the galaxy. That's really interesting. Do we have any idea how many rogue planets there may be out there? Like we haven't, have we, we haven't discovered any, have we? Yeah, there have been some discoveries of rogue planets. You wouldn't be able to use the transit method to find one, but there's uh, other methods, mainly the direct imaging method. I'm not sure if that one has discovered any rogue planets, but theoretically it could. Um, but microlensing has found some rogue planets. What is microlensing? Okay, microlensing draws on Einstein's theory of general relativity. It's one of the more difficult ones to wrap my head around. Okay, I'll give it a shot. Okay. <laughs> so imagine we've got, we're, we're observing from the Earth, and there's a star that's really far in the background, and there's a star that's in, the, in between, right along our line of sight. So we've got the three objects that are in a line. If they are perfectly aligned, the light from the star that's in the background will be bent around the star that's in the middle. And what we'll see is a magnification of light coming from that background star like it'll look brighter than it actually is supposed to be and this only happens when the objects are perfectly aligned and it's just due to the planet's mass bending space time around it due to you know as we as we know from einstein's general theory of relativity so then we add a planet to the mix so if there's a planet that's orbiting around that middle star it will also contribute mass to the lensing effect and you'll see another slight magnification of that lens star that's due to the planet but we'll we'll have you know without a planet there'll be kind of a big spike in brightness as that background star is perfectly aligned and if there's a planet it will be the same spike in brightness but a slightly smaller spike of brightness somewhere along that that main spike and then that's that way you can you can say that you found some other mass that's that's causing this lensing effect science bless you space nerds <laughs> It's <laughs> incredible. Speaking of nerds, uh, let's find out what everyone's nerding about. What you nerding about? What you nerding about? So this week, uh, we're actually going to be starting with some audience nerd outs, which you can as well, if you want to tell us what you've been nerding out about, because uh, I don't know about you, Kaylee, but I've been really missing the in-person Fox Cabaret experience, meeting new people, learning what they're nerding about. The alcohol. The alcohol. <laughs> so yeah, so please uh, tell us what you've been nerding out about. And we've got a couple submissions already. First, Russ has been nerding about psychedelics and their therapeutic uses. Kaylee, uh, how's your uh, psychedelic use uh, this pandemic? Not nearly enough, but there's actually this is this is an interesting area. There's there's quite a bit of work that's been going on, especially around like microdosing 
of psychedelic mushrooms for things like anxiety. And I'm actually really interested to see what those studies will find. Yeah, I've like, I've been really curious because like, I, I swear, I I think my mom would benefit from maybe some microdosing of just like a little bit of weed, just to, like she's always been a very high stress kind of person. She's got some health issues. I've always kind of thought that she would benefit from it. And I mentioned it once and she was like, oh, absolutely not. Like she's she's very like conservative in that way. So I wonder, you know, it'll take some take a while for uh, that generation to catch on to it. Well, you know what everybody else would also benefit from is like a counselor or a therapist. And we have another nerd out from Millie who's been nerding out about counseling in space. And I thought this was really interesting, you know, being able to actually counsel people on space missions, especially because it seems like we don't seem to value mental health that much on Earth, but we are recognizing that it's important in space. So it'd be great to see if we could bring a little of that energy back down to Earth. Uh, Michelle, would you ever go on one of those analog Mars missions uh, and really get, delve into uh, if you're, you've are you got the goods to go to uh, deep space missions? I don't know. I, I like my life as it is too much <laughs> to really isolate myself. And, and I, I mean, that's why counselors are are necessary because I'm sure that it plays something on your mind. Either being isolated by yourself or even just isolated with the same people in a tiny little capsule. That doesn't sound very fun to me. I could certainly use some Deanna Troy in my life, uh, that's for sure. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, yeah, let's uh, go to you, Michelle. What have you been nerding out about? I'm really excited about the Perseverance launch that happened last week. So Perseverance is one of the Mars rovers, and it's currently on its way to Mars. But the really cool thing about this one is it's going to try to find signs of life on Mars. And it'll be taking back some soil samples, rock samples, things like that. And I don't know if it will find any signs of ancient life, but just the fact that it's looking for it, it's really exciting. And I know some people feel that the the best place to actually find the next form of life that's not on our own Earth is in our own solar system. So once they brought that soil back, will somebody be getting Matt Damon to go and plant some potatoes in it? <laughs> well, I, they'll have to be really careful about contamination because there there have been signs of life found in in outer space, but it just turned out to be you know someone didn't scrub the machine well enough. You got to be careful of that. But I'm sure that they're doing all all that they can to make sure that doesn't happen. Michael. Were you also nerding out about the uh, the recent launch? Absolutely. I did watch uh, both of those launches before and after I was watching my next new favorite show. Now, last nerd out, I did talk about devs, which is my new my newest new favorite show. But Dark, uh, which just wrapped up its third season, is also right up there. Neither Never Nor Ever Goodbye is how the show starts. And I find this little uh, song, uh, which was not actually written for the show. It's They actually like took the song and used it for the theme song to this show, which is about time travel. It's about time paradox. It's about the nature of time itself. And, you know, I was thinking as a science communicator, we are looking for new tools to communicate. And Art and poetry, I find, can be really useful to explain really complicated subject matters. And, you know, this show does have a little bit of science. It does go off on some crazy tangents. But I think about even just sort of like those words, neither, never, nor ever, goodbye, and how you could interpret that in so many different ways, but you don't really need to. You just, the purpose of it is just to kind of get you set up 
to understand what the show is about, which is the very nature of time itself. And so I think there's a lot of lessons uh, from a science communicator to uh, to use art and maybe bring back some poetry into our into our craft. What about you, Kaylee? What have you been nerding out about? Well, I've actually, <laughs> Michael, you'll be so excited. <laughs> um, I've actually been nerding out about Star Trek. <laughs> so for anyone who's listening, they know that Michael has been watching my favorite TV show, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I have been watching Michael's favorite TV show, which is Star Trek The Next Generation. And in part, it's so that we can understand the language that we each use. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've started really enjoying it. I'm somewhere in season four. And as you said, Michelle, it's there's a lot of philosophy in this show that I hadn't anticipated. And I watched an episode the other day about this Altarian encephalitis virus, and it was super interesting. And I was like, could a virus like that actually exist? So there's been this one part of it that it's been really fun. But on a personal nerd out, my Uncle Jerry and I were really, really close. And my Uncle Jerry passed away about 10 years ago. And Star Trek was one of his and probably was actually just his favorite show. And it's something that I never really understood uh, why he loved that show so much. And now that I'm watching it, I'm I'm understanding it. And some of the conversations that we've had in the past are starting to make a little more sense to me. And it's, it's funny, it's like 10 years later, I'm starting to get some of his jokes. And so I've actually found it deeply personal and also very entertaining. So it's been sort of like a really lovely a really lovely experience. Wow. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdin' About. Uh, as you make your move to uh, to MIT, how could people, are you doing social media stuff? Like, uh, how can people like learn more about uh, your new discoveries, uh, your new exoplanets that I'm sure you're going to discover? Um, I don't have like a Twitter account, um, so people wouldn't be able to, to contact me <laughs> through there. But anyone can send me an email and, and you're welcome to share my email if anyone inquires. There have been people in the past who've talked to me over email just after, you know, a talk that I've given or a podcast that I've done. And I'm always really interested to, to talk to people about what I what I do and how they can get involved with planet hunting. I mean, one of the things that I did was for planet hunting is, is using a lot of code, um, but that might not necessarily be um, the way that you know certain people like to to look for planets. So there's a lot of other options. There's planet hunters, for instance, where you just need to go on to your internet browser and look at pictures of of these measurements of the brightness of stars. And you don't need any coding experience. You can get involved with planets. So really welcoming anyone to ask questions. Awesome. That sounds amazing. Yeah. If anyone out there wants to get into some citizen science, which I'm always a big advocate for, and join uh, Michelle and being a discoverer of uh, some brand new planets. I'm 100% signing up. I want to discover some planets and name them after probably rats. <laughs> um, and thank you everybody for listening and tuning in. If you would like to hear more from us, you can follow us at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until next time, live long and prosper. <laughs>